Welcome to a special episode of the Neutral Ground Podcast. Every Christmas, for the past 10 years or so, I read through Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. And I do so for a few reasons. First, it actually does prompt me to think about how I treat others around me, preventing the hardening of the soul toward others. Secondly, it challenges me to rethink how I view helping others, moving me from obligation to blessing. And finally, it loads me up with, well, I believe the scientific term is the fuzzies, the warm feelings that we actually need in order to anchor us to our fellow man and remind us that we have a lot more agency to help others than we might think. I want to specify up front, this is not meant to be academic. I'm not bringing in research or even trying to prove a thesis necessarily, other than maybe Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is worth a read. We're going to have a little fun, and hopefully along the way I can prompt you to see what I see, that this story is much deeper and more complex than we give it credit for. We're going to look at three sections of the text that I believe are often underappreciated, neglected, or outright left out of film and television adaptations. Although if you want a quick endorsement for which adaptation I believe is the best one, that's actually an easy answer for me. It's the 1951 Alistair Sim classic. It does have some textual inaccuracies, but in my opinion no one captures the spiritual movement that takes place within Scrooge better than the actor Alistair Sim. So if you can't read the story, go ahead and watch that movie and you'll at least get some introduction to these three sections of the text that we'll be discussing today. Added bonus, there are some rather good quality versions of the entire film up on YouTube. Yes, I realize I just broke the cardinal rule of content creation and probably lost half of my audience to a YouTube search, but if it's for a good cause, then I'm perfectly fine with taking that hit. Just come back to this video when you've finished watching the movie. The three sections of the text that I want to look at more closely are Marley's true cause of suffering, which we learn from his famous visit. Secondly, I want to look at the boarding school where Scrooge is abandoned by his father and what that does to him. And finally, I want to talk about the role of time in the story, which I find to be much more fascinating than we realize. So. Let's dive in. Many people are at least somewhat familiar with the plot of A Christmas Carol. The hard-edged miser Ebenezer Scrooge is told by the ghost of his former working partner, Jacob Marley, that he will need to be visited by three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, in order to avoid wandering the earth in chains as a spirit, and so that he can expiate that which is holding him back from achieving a true connection with humanity. By the end of the story, he learns the value of kindness, charity, and becomes the very best of us. Tiny Tim gives us his blessing, and the rest is history. But there is a lot more to this story than meets the eye, and it begins with Jacob Marley's visit. Now, the first thing I want to point out about this scene is the description of Scrooge's fireplace. So let's take a look at it. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago, and paved all around with quaint Dutch tiles 
designed to illustrate the scriptures. There were Cain's and Abel's, Pharaoh's daughters, queens of Sheba, angelic messengers descending through the air on clouds like featherbeds, Abraham's, Belshazzar's, apostles putting off to sea in butterboats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts. Now the fireplace is decorated with these Dutch tiles representing scripture and biblical stories and characters. Of course, these are fairly obvious references, but what I find to be fascinating about the language here is that Dickens makes the characters plural. There are Cain's and Abel's, Pharaoh's daughters, and Queen's of Sheba, Abraham's, etc. Dickens' use of plurals here, to me, indicates an invitation for us to think about this typologically, as in types and antitypes, that's A-N-T-E, types. Let's briefly break down just the Cain and Abel reference for a moment, because it's important. We know that it's about the first murder in the Bible. Cain and Abel make offerings unto God, and Abel's is accepted while Cain's is rejected. This makes Cain angry, and he kills his brother and becomes a marked man. It's out of the Cain and Abel story that we get one of the most well-known questions within a sacred text. When God asks Cain where his brother Abel is located, Cain returns a question back to God. Am I my brother's keeper? That's Genesis 4.9. Of course, God knows what happened to Abel. So why does he ask Cain? Oftentimes, with children, a parent or guardian will ask such a question. They know that the child stole the cookies from the counter, but they'll ask, did you take the cookies from the counter? So why do we do this? We want the person to move through an act of confession, to be able to address what they have done and not become a person who lives by patterns of deceit. This is also what happens in the story of A Christmas Carol. The ghosts are essentially asking Scrooge, look at what you have done, are doing, and will do. Confess it openly and address it so that you may get your life back on a pathway of forgiveness and redemption. For Dickens, much in the same way as it was for contemporary American author Herman Melville, the Cain and Abel story provides an important look into how fraternal bonds could be easily severed through the commonest of human emotions, avarice, jealousy, and wrath. And that when we allow these emotions to dictate our relationships with each other, we reenact the story of Cain and Abel. We become Cain's enables. We kill our brothers and sisters and then pretend as if it doesn't matter. Marley's visit essentially answers the question proposed by Cain. Am I my brother's keeper, or is my fellow man's life my business? Marley says yes. And here is where we enter into our question, what is the true cause of Marley's suffering? The common reason that we see in TV and film versions of A Christmas Carol is that Marley is in agony because of his chains. And don't get me wrong, this is an important part of his woes. The empirical evidence tends to speak for itself in performances of the story. The chains are large, heavy, they drag upon the floor, make horrific sounds, and they certainly symbolize Marley being forever trapped. But when we turn to the text itself, we find that Marley has quite a different view of his chains than we might think. You are fettered 
said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Marley does not have a problem with the chains. He owns them. He made them. He fully accepts the fact that they represent the fetters that he built while he was alive. His remark about making it of his own free will connects us back to another famous figure in literature that we know well on this podcast, Milton Satan. We know that Dickens received a copy of John Milton's Paradise Lost as part of a collected poetical works gift from John Macrone in 1836. And then when an inventory of Dickens' library was done in 1844, there were at least two copies of Paradise Lost as part of the total collection. So Dickens was most definitely aware of the character by the time he wrote A Christmas Carol. So it is at least plausible that Milton's fallen angel crept into Dickens' mind as he wrote his Christmas story. One of the primary lies that Milton Satan continually tells is that he did not have the free will to do anything other than attempt to overthrow God. But in the famous monologue that I read and broke down on this podcast, at his most honest point in the entire text, Milton Satan asks himself, Hadst thou the same free will and power to stand? To which he responds, Thou hadst. Satan will continually try and pass the responsibility for his actions off to others, which becomes one of the many sources of his personal great suffering. However, Marley is completely resigned to wearing these chains. What makes Marley suffer so is not the chains, but the loss of agency, the loss of being able to be his brother's keeper. Let me show you what I mean by putting together two parts of the text. Just prior to the section I read before about Marley's chains, Scrooge asks his former partner, But why do spirits walk the earth, and why do they come to me? And this is what Marley has to say. It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men, and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me. And witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. I love this idea that Dickens puts into the text. There is a need for our spirit when we're alive to wander beyond our small local existences of home, work, school, hobbies, etc. Now, this wandering of our spirit can happen in many ways. Good deeds, letters, emails, even texts, charity. The point is to let your eyes, ears, and heart be open to places where you can do some good. Let your spirit wander. But, and here is the Dickensian rub, you must do so while you can. Let's fast forward to the end of Marley's visit now. This is the scene where Marley beckons Scrooge to come to the window in the room. 
and Scrooge for a brief moment bears witness to an entire world of suffering that takes place in the space between life and death, one that we who walk the earth alive never even take notice. Scrooge followed to the window. Desperate in his curiosity, he looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste, and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was, clearly, that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. This notion of looking at charity and kindness as a privilege of mankind is fascinating to me, and I have to admit that it is a reading that I can't always keep at the forefront of my mind, because doing good often seems like a burden to us. We feel good when we do it, and when we produce happiness out of the action. But we often do not see the ability to act as an honor and privilege, one that we lose upon death. This is not something that many of the adaptations put forward, and yet I think it's an important distinction because it helps us better understand why Scrooge is so happy to do good at the very end of the story why he indicates how happy he is that he is allowed to give his time and resources to others and produce a moment of happiness in the lives of people who are struggling around him. It's something that I try to keep in the forefront of my mind all year, but I admit that it can easily morph from privilege to responsibility to burden. A reading of this text usually reminds me that I am quite blessed to be alive blessed to have certain skills that I can share with family and friends and resources that I can use to help those around me because there will be a time when I can't. Now, the second part of the story that I believe is often neglected or underappreciated in adaptations of the text is when Scrooge is at the boarding school as a young man and he's visited by his sister, Fan. This is a tough scene to read through because it's, quite sad to think that a young person could be abandoned like this, but we know it does happen. This scene is important because it introduces why Scrooge has always had an issue with two words, value and honor. Although some movies, including the Alistair Sim, I believe, make note that Scrooge's mother died in childbirth with Scrooge, that's not actually in the book. And upon scrutiny, it doesn't really hold up because we're told that Fan is his younger sister, and we have no indication that she's a stepsister, so she was likely born by Scrooge's mother. So you would need some kind of time machine to make this work, and we all know that once you involve a time machine in a story, you can easily lose the value of the narrative. Although I suppose you could make the argument that the ghosts are like time machines. Hmm. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's save the time for the third section. It could be that Scrooge's mother passed away giving birth to Fan, but that would still be speculation. What isn't speculation 
is that the school in which Scrooge has been abandoned as a young man is a horrid place. And it is within these terrible walls that Scrooge began to learn his value. As the older Scrooge, looking upon his younger self, relays to the ghost of Christmas past, I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. Let's take a look at how the school is described. They left the high road by a well-remembered lane and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick with a little weathercock-surmounted cupola on the roof and a bell hanging in it. It was a large house, but one of broken fortunes, for the spacious offices were little used, their walls were damp and mossy, their windows broken, and their gates decayed. Fowls clucked and strutted in the stables, and the coach houses and sheds were overrun with grass. Nor was it more retentive of its ancient state within. For entering the dreary hall and glancing through the open doors of many rooms, they found them poorly furnished, cold, and vast. There was an earthy savor in the air, a chilly barrenness in the place, which associated itself somehow with too much getting up by candlelight and not too much to eat. The primary word that we want to think about for this section is honor. Nothing on these premises is considered valuable enough to be honored. Nothing is maintained. Nothing is fixed. It lives in a perpetual state of dilapidation. When you honor something, you don't just value it. You take care of it because you believe that it offers something beautiful to the world that is beyond our temporal quantitative systems of valuation. Scrooge, being the lone boy inside at this point, with no friends or loved ones, has become just another item of the school that seemingly deserves no honor. His father has abandoned him. When children do not feel loved and honored, they become people who do not know how to love and honor others, which leads to a cycle of perpetually difficult relationships with not just others, but with oneself. How do I honor myself and others? if I don't know what the word means. When Fan visits Scrooge to take him home, she provides a kind of light, a point of reference for Scrooge to cast his eyes upon. She carries the value of honor within her heart. She pulls her brother to her in order to protect him from the surroundings and remind him of his worth, a value that was bestowed upon him as a child. Let's listen to how Fan describes her current home life. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost and, with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened, and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in, and putting her arms about his neck and often kissing him, addressed him as her dear, dear brother. I have come to bring you home, dear brother, said the child, clapping her tiny hands and bending down to laugh, to bring you home, home, home. Home, little fan, returned the boy. Yes, said the child, brimful of glee. Home for good and all. Home forever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be that home's like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one dear night when I was going to bed that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home. And he said, yes, you should, and sent me in a coach to bring you. And you're to be a man said the child, opening her eyes, and are never to come back here 
But first, we're to be together all the Christmas long and have the merriest time in all the world. The line, and you're to be a man, always strikes me when I read it because it's as if the surroundings of the school perpetually keep Scrooge in a state of boyhood. Because he doesn't know the value of what it means to be a grown man, to mentor young people, to find agency and value in your work, to not have responsibility simply thrust upon you, but to pick it up and carry it of your own free will. Many of the concepts that I find young people struggling with today. It's not enough for young people to know they are loved. They can get love from false idols, from followers on social media. We want them to learn the value of honor. In some ways, this connects back to my previous section. There is a privilege in growing up, in having more agency to do good. When we keep this scene with Fan in mind, and then return to the beginning of the book, to the first appearance of Fred, Scrooge's nephew and Fan's son, that introduction to Fred takes on a whole new meaning. Let's take a look at it. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you, cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, and his breath smoked again. Christmas! A humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with humbug. Let me fast forward to the end of this scene here. Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir, he added, turning to his nephew. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed he did. He went the whole length of the expression and said that he would see him in that extremity first. This opening scene mirrors the school scene in many ways. What does Fred want to do? Bring Scrooge home, to family, to dine with him. What is the office? It's just like the school. Nothing is honored. The sign still has poor Marley's name on it. There is no heat. And because of this, nothing within the walls are honored either, including Bob Cratchit and Scrooge himself. Fred is the spitting image of Fan. He provides that same kind of light, remember the sparkling eyes, and point of reference that his mother did in the school scene. By cutting out the school scene or underplaying it in many of these adaptations, the Fred scene in the beginning loses a potentially rich part of the context for another reason why the nephew seemingly never gives up on Scrooge. It's almost as if Fan herself is still trying to remove that little boy from his soul-crushing surroundings and begin to understand the true definitions of value and honor. 
Now, the final part of the text that I want to look at is the way that time functions. Every adaptation that I know of stays true to the idea that time functions in an odd way in the story, in that what seems like it would take many hours, if not days, happens in one night. Except, does it? Or is there something else going on here that we just don't often think about? Let's go to the text to establish a better understanding of time in the story. This is once again the scene with Jacob Marley. You were always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank ye. You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. Scrooge's countenance fell almost as low as the ghosts had done. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? He demanded in a faltering voice. It is. I, I think I'd rather not, said Scrooge. Without their visits, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow, when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once, and have it over, Jacob? hinted Scrooge. Expect the second on the next night, at the same hour. The third upon the next night, when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. So, just for clarification... We have 24 hours in between the first two visits, and then another 23 hours in between the second and third. We're most definitely spanning multiple days here. We know that the story begins on Christmas Eve, December 24th, and then ends on Christmas Day, December 25th. Now, most people just accept that it's a kind of Christmas miracle and move on, but I have what is probably such a silly question that no one but someone like me would even think to ask. If in Dickens' world, God is not bound by time at all, and he can, of course, make events happen in multiple days and then place an individual back in time in another day, why all of this fuss about making sure that Scrooge understands that time is indeed passing in between the spirits? Why doesn't God simply do all of this in one night, and ostensibly, of course, he does, but why the emphasis on it spanning multiple days? Well, I think to answer that question, we need to look at what many probably see as a throwaway line in the text, one that I don't think comes up in many adaptations and one that comes from the section I just read. After Marley mentions the coming of the first ghost at 1 a.m., Scrooge interrupts him and says, Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Let's take Scrooge's question seriously instead of just dismissing it as whining. It seems to me that the answer to his question is actually yes. God could simply bring all of the spirits there at once. He could even make the visit happen all in one night as he ostensibly does. And Scrooge would have just woken up on Christmas morning like usual and possibly have been transformed. But that's not what happens. Why? That's my question. Why is there this need to acknowledge the, th the three separate days and visits from the ghosts? There could be a Christian theological connection here with the number three. Jesus rises on the third day after his crucifixion. Can we make the argument that Scrooge goes through a kind of death and resurrection? I mean, yeah, there is certainly a kind of resurrection happening here. However, God winds the clock back 
so that technically Scrooge is reborn on the second day on Christmas, which of course is also the celebrated birthday of Jesus. That still doesn't really answer my question about why the multiple days at all? Why the recognition of time? Here are my thoughts. The need to spread the visits out over the course of the three days represents the fact that, as much as we wish it to be the case, true change within the human being takes time. It takes commitment. It takes endurance. And there is also the urgency that comes from not wanting to waste the precious time that we have to be able to make positive changes in our lives. Dickens doubles down on making us aware of the issue of time when Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas present. Here's another scene that is often left out of adaptations. Let's read it together. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change but never spoke of it until they left a children's twelfth night party, when, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was gray. "'Are spirits' lives so short?' asked Scrooge. "'My life upon this globe is very brief,' replied the ghost. "'It ends tonight.' Tonight? cried Scrooge. Tonight, at midnight. Hark, the time is drawing near. If Scrooge sees the ghost all at once, and in one night, it's likely that it would have impacted him for a little bit of time, maybe a month, maybe even six months, but it would not have changed him truly for the better. Scrooge's complaint to Marley about wanting to see them all at once is a complaint that many of us have about trying to enact positive change in our lives. Can't it just happen sooner? The answer is almost always no. With the aging ghosts, Dickens might also be pushing us towards the idea that time waits for no man. Well, except for Ebenezer Scrooge, apparently. As we wait to make these important changes in our lives, not only do we get older— but the people we love are getting older as well. I'll just make a quick plea to those of you who have stopped speaking to your loved ones because of political differences. Please, put them aside. There will always be politics. There will always be disagreements on how to approach governance and complex issues of ethics. But there will not always be a time when you can reach out to those you love, to hear their voice, to grasp them, in a hug. Do not let the world dictate who you love and when you love. As a final note on this time section, I want to point out that God also provides Scrooge with one final gift, placing him back on December 25th. People often say that humanity is a little bit kinder around Christmas. I don't have the data to back that up, but it might be the case. However, I will say this. I think people are more open to receiving kindness around Christmas. And that might be the nicest gift of all for Scrooge. By starting his campaign of kindness on Christmas, it masks the fact that he is acting wholly different from how people knew him. It opens people up more readily to believe that Scrooge has, in fact, changed. 
Had this all happened around March 18th or somewhere else on the calendar, it's completely believable to me that others might look at Scrooge and wonder, what the heck are you doing? That could have suppressed his yearning to do good and make him feel more alienated. We never really think about it this way, but if someone is reaching out to you and trying to do good, trying to change themselves for the better, there is something to be said for making sure that you are receptive as possible so that we can help reinforce kindness and give people a pathway out of shame, guilt, and alienation. We'll end our primary discussion of the text here. I hope that I've done an admirable enough job to make some of you consider reading A Christmas Carol this year. It's not a particularly long text, so you still have plenty of time to read it before the holidays are over. If you do read it, make sure that you do so with an active mind. Let your mind wander in addition to your spirit. And allow yourself the opportunity to be open to the suggestions of kindness, charity, and forgiveness. This is the true value of great texts. They remind us about what it means to be human. If you've enjoyed this, consider hitting the subscribe slash follow button, leave a, a kind, thoughtful comment, and sharing the episode with a friend. We're trying to bring civility back to discourse one conversation at a time, and we're always looking for more people to join the cause. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground. And have a great Christmas and holiday season.